0: Mysteries of ages past, unenlightened shadows cast Down through all eternity, the crying of humanity Tis then when the hurdy-gurdy man comes singing songs of love Then when the hurdy-gurdy man comes singing songs of love
1: Hello and welcome to episode 8 of Ghost Stories for the End of the World. Hope you're good. Uh, I just want to start out with a little bit of housekeeping with regards to the last episode because somehow, and I do apologize for this, but somehow I completely overlooked another weird twist in the epilogue. Uh, the epilogue even to the Matanza. And I'm kicking myself for forgetting to mention this, but basically, in short, after Bernardo Provenzano was captured in 2006, he tried to kill himself in jail. And when he was transferred to a different section of the prison in Palermo to be placed under suicide watch, a number of mafiosi who were watching him from their cells started calling him a policeman and a rat and it turns out a few Pentito have since claimed that Provenzano may well have traded Totorina to the government and destroyed whatever blackmail material or offshore bank account information there was in the safe in Rina's house in exchange for more of a hands-off approach from the incoming uh, Forza Italia government. And, you know, he was looking for some breathing space as well to like reorient Cosa Nostra's business priorities as they lost more and more control of the heroin trade in the 1990s. So that got lost in my notes somewhere for last episode. And again, I'm sorry about that, guys. Um, I've also had a couple of nice emails over the last week. So I've been buzzing a little bit about that. And because it seems like this thing is spreading around a bit. And I've realized that I'm feeling more motivated to knuckle down and try to keep more consistent release cycle going. Maybe because I know there's actually there are real people listening to this now and they're apparently enjoying it and sharing it with their friends. Despite the Yorkshire monotone kind of taking the poetry of the Italian language and turning it into prose. And I also <clears throat> and I also kind of dig how because we don't have a Twitter or a Facebook or really any proper promotion this is spreading via word of mouth out there um, on the, the weird parts of the internet. So it's kind of like a video nasty horror film that kids are passing around to each other in school or something like that. It's proper underground, so I like that. Um, I a few of the emails were queries about what the future shows will be about. And I've had some much appreciated tip-offs which I'm gonna investigate. Um, the thing that I was asked quite a lot is whether I'm going to be going deeper on the CIA and specifically Alan Dulles. And I can say absolutely 100% we will be returning to both of those uh, time and again in upcoming episodes. So don't worry about that. Um, but what I'm trying to do is avoid going the more obvious routes. So for me, it's about finding the stuff that it's not as well known, but it's just a strange and interesting and consequential. You know what I mean? So, yeah, uh, it's been very nice to hear from you guys. Nice to uh, chat to some of you. I'm glad you're enjoying it so far. So hit us up on ghoststoriesend at gmail.com. And I might make it a a thing to reply to a few questions or, or talking points or whatever at the top of each show going forward, if enough rolling. Right. It's been a long strange journey through Italy and now we have one more stop to make before we wrap things up and turn our attention elsewhere and this one to my mind ties together all these different strands that we've been following for the last few hours of the show and it's such a sprawling story that initially it was difficult to find a way into it despite many attempts to streamline it and break it down to the basics so let's begin at long last the long promised, long heralded chat about Roberto Calvi, Propaganda Due, and the collapse of Banco Ambrosiano. start in London in June of 1982, where Calvi's dead body was found hanging from the underside of a bridge leading into the city of London, and bricks had been stuffed into his pockets and underwear to weigh him down, and he was carrying about 15 grand in cash in bundles of Swiss francs, English pounds, uh, Austrian shillings, American dollars, and Italian lira. Calvi was the chairman of Banco Ambrosiano, and a month after he died, the bank would collapse completely. The day before his body was found, his secretary had taken a swan dive out of a fourth floor window at the bank's headquarters in Milan. And despite a suicide note, there is some suspicion that she was what the Italians call suicided, as in maybe someone did the suicide to her. Um a year earlier, Calvi had been exposed as a member of the outlawed Masonic Lodge, Propaganda Due, or P2, and for this reason, journalists were quick to note that the name of the bridge he was hanging from, Blackfriars, is also a kind of rank and a nickname that members of P2 and I think some Freemasons in general, actually, uh, sometimes use to refer to each other. And there's also a Blackfriars Masonic Lodge that has meeting rooms all over the city of London and. I believe there may also be one of these lodges in Scotland as well, but we won't get we won't get too far out there this early. Uh, what I will say is, it is reasonable to see significance in the fact that Calvi was found dead in the city of London and not the Greater London area. For non-British listeners who might be. Um, wondering what the distinction is between Greater London and the City of London. Uh, Not to sound like a a patronising British wanker here, by the way, that's just, that's how we all sound. Um, The City of London is a kind of separate city within a city, and it has been for about a thousand years, give or take. And this has made it a very attractive place for people who need to clean extremely dirty money. Um, the City of London Police also has sole jurisdiction in the area for the most part. And there have been long standing rumours that they're somewhat susceptible to influence from this weird collection of ancient business and trade guilds that actually run the city. And this, again, can sometimes lead the police to uh, police the area in a way that is a little bit too. Um, relaxed, let's say. In 2019, for example, a review conducted by Her Majesty's Inspectorate of the Constabulary concluded that the city police were falling way short of all the metrics they used to judge how hard and how seriously a given police force is trying to fix corruption issues it concluded that administrative and complaints processing teams were understaffed despite being adequately funded to fill those positions and that not enough was being done to address everything from conflicts of interest like cops having undisclosed second and third income streams to uh, cops pressuring victims of crime and criminals alike using what the report uh, described as sexual blackmail, but like all these types of reviews, you know, the inspector, it still concluded that the city police were doing a, a bang up job. So no need to look too closely, I guess. Anyway, the cops at the time immediately concluded that Calvi had committed suicide and they stuck to this story despite the skepticism of the media and Calvi's family. And I mean, who kn- may- who knows? Maybe the police genuinely did believe that it was a suicide, but also maybe, they were encouraged towards this conclusion by certain interested parties. And within a month, an inquest had also settled on a suicide verdict. And in July, as we uh, mentioned, Banco Ambrosiano collapsed completely. Now, Roberto Calvi joined the bank in 1947. And he made a name for himself as a very savvy, very ambitious businessman who had a great head for numbers and a knack for making powerful friends. At this point, Banco Ambrosiano was still more or less committed to its original mission statement to do business in line with a kind of a framework of christian morality so this is stuff like supporting local charities not taking unnecessary risks with investors money and at one time they even declined to do business with anyone who couldn't prove that they'd been baptized uh, as a roman catholic ba was also a preferred bank of the vatican And ever since Italian unification, the church has had uh, a very uneasy relationship with the Italian state, particularly around the issue of its finances. The Vatican Bank is known as the Institute for Religious Works, or the IOR, and to shield its money from the state as much as possible, the Vatican moves a lot of business through a network of Italian banks closely allied to it. This has created a kind of dual banking system in Italy where on one side you have Catholic banks like BA and on the other you have secular ones like say uh, HSBC or uh, the Bank of Italy. The Vatican itself uh, is estimated to be worth about $3 billion all told when you factor in all its assets, its properties, its stock shares, its, its cash on hand and so on. It's likely that the church is actually worth a lot more, but its financial affairs have always been exceptionally murky. Um, By the late 40s, when Calvi had started working at Banco Ambrosiano, the Vatican was sitting on a fortune in large part because of World War II. In 1942, for example, the Vatican made $100 million from a church tax signed into law by the Nazis, where uh, people living in Germany and the occupied regions were were actually taxed. to support the church. And the tax exemption that was given to them by Mussolini's government put something like 85 million into the IOR. And they also encouraged people to stash their money for safekeeping during the war in the Vatican Bank because the Nazis and the Mussolini regime had this hands-off policy towards the church. And then, of course, there have also been long-standing suspicions that the church received a lot of the money and the possessions that had been stolen from Eastern European Jews by the Nazis uh, during the Holocaust. So we're talking things like uh, art, gold, jewelry, uh, priceless heirlooms and and things like that. And from declassified intelligence documents and the accounts of clergy themselves, we also now know that the church in return for the privileges conferred on them by the German and Italian governments, worked closely with the OSS and the Nazis to set up rat lines to help different figures high up in the Third Reich escape the Allied advance at the end of the war. And <clears throat> among many other things, this helped seed extremely valuable business contacts all over South America that the CIA, the IOR, and Banco Ambrosiano would come to work with uh, in the decades ahead. Um, by the 1950s, Pope Pius had entrusted most of the Vatican's finances to a collection of investment banking wizards led by a guy called Bernardino nogara This was the Iowa's investment A-team, basically, and they came to be known by the church as men of confidence. Nogara, working closely with Calvi at BA, started sheltering the Vatican's money in companies and real estate all over the world, and by the 60s, the church was making an absolute killing from a bewildering array of offshore holdings, real estate, and stocks in some of the biggest companies on the planet. So we're talking things like IBM, there's that another Nazi link there, of course, Um, General Motors, Shell Oil, weapons manufacturers, various real estate firms, they even owned a piece of the Watergate Hotel and shares in a pharmaceutical company that made the pill too. And, you know, when you see something like that, you can't help but think they're obviously just fucking with us here, aren't they? You know? And the key development that Nagara brought to the mix was to suggest that the church begin lending money at competitive rates of interest, which the church was happy to do, uh, because this ensured that they'd need Banco Ambrosiano to facilitate the money lending. Uh, a, due to a religious edict that had been issued back in the 19th century that forbid the Vatican Bank from directly engaging in what it referred to as, as usury. Nogara died in 1958, but the investment and the money lending strategy that he devised was going to remain the, the kind of the underlying template in the decades ahead. And although Calvi had helped implement a lot of this and he'd made a, a ton of connections in the, the upper echelons of the clergy and Italy's business elite by devising a mutual fund for investors at BA, by the mid-60s, he was stuck in a, a fairly dull managerial role and he was looking for that next step up the ladder. And he found it with the patronage of a guy called Michele Sindona. Now, I think we've mentioned this guy before, but just briefly... He got his start in business in Sicily, which is where he was from. And he was running a trucking firm that transported citrus fruit from Palermo. And as we know, if you work in the citrus groves around Palermo, you are working with the Sicilian mafia. There's just no way of avoiding that. So Sindona realized just how much money there was to be made, working on commission for the clans as a kind of underworld speculator and money launderer. And by the early 60s, he was cleaning heroin money, not just for the Sicilian clans, but also for the five families of New York, particularly the Gambinos, the Lucchesis, and the Bonanos. Sindona then moved to the mainland and bought his first bank in the early 60s. And just like Calvi, he built up a list of influential contacts in the Vatican. And these contacts helped persuade the IOR to bring him on board as an advisor and consultant, one of their um, men of confidence that we, we talked about. Um, This was in 1969, and he was undoubtedly aware that Banco Ambrosiano was the perfect place to set up a money laundering, money lending and tax avoidance operation due, amongst many other things, to Calvi's reputation as a canny and discreet banker. So he reached out to Calvi, who jumped at this opportunity to, to kind of bring in the Vatican in a bigger way. And Sindana and Calvi expanded uh, BA and, and by extension, the Vatican's interests even more. And they created a bunch of offshore accounts and shell companies to shield the Vatican's money from the Italian government. And they didn't just do this for the Vatican either. They were also moving mafia heroin profits through the same clandestine network to say nothing of the dozens of Italian financiers and industrialists who were also making use of their services while intelligence agencies like the CIA and Italy's SISDE also came to rely on this system to set up black ops slush funds for their pet projects, such as Gladia. And Calvi and Sindona, naturally, were also skimming huge commissions for themselves from every single transaction. Now, now, why do I say that the CIA and these other spook outfits were dipping into the pot as well. Well, Sindona and Calvi were also working with a guy who we've mentioned before, Licio Gelli. Gelli is one of the darker characters in this period of Italian history, which I'm sure you get by now that's saying a lot. Um, So just to have a run through his CV again, in case you missed the the Years of Lead episode, Gelli was a committed fascist who'd fought for Franco in the uh, Spanish Civil War, and he was a full-throated supporter of Mussolini's government and a kind of ambassador to the Nazi regime. In fact, he was on such good terms with them that he he played a pivotal role in helping some of the most notorious Nazis, like Klaus Barbie, get to the Vatican rat lines before they could be arrested for war crimes and the part they played in, in the Holocaust. After World War Two, he worked as a a triple agent, I suppose you could say, for the CIA, the KGB, and the Italian secret services. Now, if you find the KGB connection a bit anomalous here, also remember that Geli was primarily driven by profit and power. So my hunch is this was him spreading his bets in case the Cold War went the Russians way and he also helped plan the failed Italian coup d'etat of 1970, Operation Torda which entailed liaising with NATO and the mafia. And most crucially, there is evidence to suggest that he was paid directly by the CIA to plan a series of false flag terrorist bombings throughout Italy as part of the strategy of tension that developed during the years of lead. You might remember that we covered an Italian court decision from earlier this year. That's That's 2020 for you guys listening in the future. Uh, And this decision confirmed that he had a direct role in planning the Bologna train station bombing of 1980, which killed 85 people and was carried out by an underground fascist group called the Armed Revolutionary Nuclei. And of course, he was also the head of, of Propaganda Due, but we'll get into that in a little bit. So by the start of the 70s, the Iowa was a major shareholder in Banco Ambrosiano and they developed such a close relationship with Calvi that he was now nicknamed God's Banker. Um, Calvi and Sandona were especially close to one Bishop Paul Marcinkus who was a Chicago-born clergyman who rose to become the chairman of the IOR. And we can think of him as the the Vatican's conduit to BA after this point, because at least as early as 1959, on behalf of the Chicago Archdiocese, Marcinkus had reached out to Mikhail Sindona, who was by that point well-known in US financial and organized crime circles, to to consult him about places to invest um, the Archdiocese money. And it goes without saying that the Chicago outfit and Sandona's own friends in the Gambino family are also lurking uh, just out of sight here, too. And Marcinkus and Sandona, together with the Continental Illinois Bank and Trust Company, formed a kind of consortium to acquire Banco Privata or Banca Privata even, which was another Milan-based bank. And Sandorna also bought a controlling interest in the Franklin National in America in 1972, with Marcinka supporting his application and plenty of mafia money backing up the purchase. This is all just to give you, really, uh, an idea of the sheer scale of all these different schemes and business and political relationships uh, to kind of to get a sense of how far up and down All these things actually reach. And we could probably burn through five hours of airtime easily just trying to follow all the connections to not just Italian, but uh, global deep politics. But um, to kind of to help sort of sum it up, consider this. Sindona was on pretty friendly terms with Richard Nixon due to his relationship with uh, Licio Gelli who had attended three separate U.S. presidential inaugurations and grown close to the Nixon administration prior to Watergate. When Sindona wound up in a spot of legal trouble in the mid-70s, Nixon helped him get legal representation from a law firm he was a partner in called Mudge, Rose, Guthrie, and Alexander. And, you know, that's, that's just one <laughs> tiny, tiny little branch of all these connections. It goes on and on and on. So essentially, BA by the 1970s was a combined money laundering front and slush fund for organized crime syndicates and spook outfits. It was a tax dodge and a financial sheltering operation for the Vatican and Italy's business and financial class. And it also served as a funding source for the global anti-communist movement. But to bring it back to the late 60s for a second, the Italian government, Around 68, 69, we're starting to think again about revoking the Vatican's tax-exempt status regarding the the properties that it owned on Italian territory. And in response to this, partly, uh, that's why they brought in Sindona to kind of come up with ways to fuck with the government a little bit by causing some economic uh, ripples. And the church started divesting itself of stocks that it earned in various Italian companies. And it sold a lot of them at inflated prices to Sindona and Calvi. The problem though, was that Sindona and Calvi couldn't quite afford the prices the IOR was asking for the shares that it was selling. So they started siphoning off depositor and investor funds from BA, another Sindona bank called Banca Unione and Banca Privata. And they then moved all this money through a bunch of shell accounts and Zurich banks to buy these stocks while Sindona could use the Franklin National to wash more money create fraudulent letters of credit. <laughs> I know you're not following what I'm saying anyway, right? That's that's okay. That doesn't matter. The real question is this. Was all this legal? Absolutely fucking not. But we were making more money than we knew what to do with. And through all of it, Jelly leveraged his political connections and a system of blackmail and kickbacks and payoffs to keep investigators away from what was happening. And for a time, it was good. It, it worked. But Sandorna had never figured on a market crash, which is exactly what happened in 1974. And it, it sank the Franklin National almost overnight. He personally lost $40 million and wiped out tens of millions more in mafia heroin profits that he would tied up in the bank. He was way over leveraged at this point. The Vatican also lost between 30 to 60 million of their cash. So, you know. Sindona had managed to get himself on the wrong side of God and the devil here, and after trying to embezzle $30 million, allegedly at the direction of the Mafia who wanted their money back ASAP, the bank was forced to ask the US Federal Reserve for a billion in bailout money to safeguard its customers' and investors' money, and it was then declared insolvent, Sindona was placed under investigation for fraud. And he assumed that Cali, Jelly, and Marsincus would be able to pull some strings somewhere to get him off the hook and somehow rescue the Franklin National. Uh, this help wasn't forthcoming, though. So in 1977, Sindana launched a strange kind of PR campaign to put pressure on Calvi and Banco Ambrosiana to help him out. And a series of posters went up all over Milan that sometimes implied and sometimes explicitly stated exactly what had been going on at BA since Calvi and Sindona took control of its investments. By that point, Calvi was the bank's chairman and the reputational damage he was suffering was starting to make him, the bank's clients and the Vatican and the surrounding network of crime syndicates and Italian elites uh, pretty nervous, frankly. In 1978, the Italian government launched a formal criminal investigation into Banco Ambrosiano in the wake of the Franklin National Collapse. And when something like this happens, in the words of Joe Pesci, you know people are going to get clipped. Sure enough, in 1978, Pope John Paul I started making noises about removing Marcinkus from Iowa. Uh, he'd somehow, Masinkus had somehow managed to escape most of the fallout from the Franklin collapse. Then, the Pope started meeting with people at the Iowa on the, on the quiet. Uh, people that he thought he could trust, to see what they thought about divesting themselves of all financial involvement with BA due to its association with Sindona and the Franklin National Collapse. This never went anywhere, though, because after just 38 days as the Pope, John Paul unexpectedly died of a heart attack. And naturally, the conspiracy theory started proliferating Um Magistrate Emilio Alessandrini and a Bank of Italy superintendent, Mario Sarsinelli issued a report in 78 that led to smaller scale investigations into the bank's financial conduct. And this must have rattled somebody because Alessandrini wound up shot dead by a left wing radical outfit called the Brigato Marzo. And their motivation was supposedly that... As a reformist judge, Alessandrini was more of a threat than a more conservative magistrate would have been since Alessandrini might neutralize a communist revolt with his liberal incrementalism. Uh, Kind of the same logic as that ascribed to the Red Brigade's uh, kidnapping motto. In 1979, a guy called Giorgio Ambrosoli was appointed to investigate this tangled uh, web of connections between the Vatican, the BA, the mafia elements of the italian state and the franklin national collapse he was shot dead shortly after he began talking to u.s prosecutors by mobsters hired by michael sindona then gerard Soisson, who was a luxembourg based financial manager at a securities firm called claystream began talking off the record to journalists about the evidence of money laundering between ba and claystream that he'd uncovered he was found shot to death in corsica before he could give a police statement And then Carmine Pecorelli, who we talked about in the Aldo Moro episode. He was an investigative journalist and he was another guy who was assassinated by mafia hitmen. He'd been digging into the Aldo Moro kidnapping and the wider overlap between the Italian secret services and the fascist underground. But he'd also uncovered more evidence of Banco Ambrosiano's fraud and money laundering operations tied to Gelli and the strategy of tension. A member of the Banco Ambrosiano board, uh, Roberto Orson was shot dead in 1980 by a Roman hitman when a rumor went around that he was preparing to cooperate with the Italian government. John Paul I's successor, uh, John Paul II, also announced his intention to review the Iowas' business ties to Banco Ambrosiano, although he still gave Marcinkus a promotion to chairman of the Iowa. This pope... uh, wound up almost being assassinated in 1981 by a guy who was part of the Turkish Grey Wolves nationalist paramilitary movement and a member of Turkey's Gladio operation counter-guerrilla. While this incident has a bunch of theories and counter-theories behind what the gunman's real motivation actually was. In fact, the CIA has been exposed since then as waging a campaign of disinformation to pin it all on the Soviets you will still find plenty of people who think that this was actually Jelly using his connections with Turkey's deep state to scare the Pope away from the idea of upsetting this delicate balance of power and politics and business at Banco Ambrosiano. By the early 80s, BA was sending money absolutely everywhere. And the CIA, with the help of Vatican Bank Insiders, was using a series of BA shell companies and secret accounts to pour funding into the Polish anti-Soviet trade union solidarity. Calvi and Jelly were busy financing death squads all over South America to prevent what Calvi referred to as philo marxist movements from undermining the church's influence in the region. They part-financed the Somoza dictatorship in Nicaragua, and then after that was overthrown by the leftist Sandinista movement, BA was one of many banks laundering millions in cocaine profits that the CIA was using to fund the Contra's campaign of assassination and terrorism against the new government and its supporters. And despite maintaining friendly relations with the British Secret Service, Calvi still found himself under investigation by MI6 when he and Gelli brokered a series of arms deals between the governments in Argentina and Peru at the height of the Falklands War. So things were starting to flake out big time around this point, and Calvi was arrested on suspicion of fraud and exporting money illegally out of Italy in 1981. These transactions had left a gigantic hole in B.A.'s finances. As some estimates put it as high as $2 billion. and he knew $2 billion that is. And he knew that the mafia, among many other parties, would be intent on getting back every single penny. So he tried to kill himself in prison while he was waiting for the trial to begin, and eventually he was given a four-year suspended sentence. But during the course of the investigation, the cops had raided one of Licio Gelli's house's and it was here that they found the famous Propaganda Due, or P2, membership list. Gelli was named as the Lodge's Grand Master, and his list contained the names of nearly a 1,000, or maybe just over a 1,000 people, actually, from all different levels of the Italian security state and political establishment, as well as prominent businessmen and organized crime figures. And among them was one Silvio Berlusconi, and of course calvians and Donna's names were also on there and there were even priests and bishops listed as members although the vatican had a long-standing decree that forbid members of the clergy from becoming masons now naturally and naturally the the possibility that a sect of neo-fascist freemasons could have been secretly orchestrating all of post-war italian history to overthrow democracy and lay the foundations for a far-right Italian rebirth project, as Gelli called it, was, well, it's huge news, isn't it? I mean, it still freaks me out to think that there is like a for real no-shit Italian (laughs) lali-lule-lo and I've been reading about this stuff for years now, but it still freaks me out to think about it. Um, And it also later turned out that although the Italian Order of Masons had outlawed uh, Propaganda Due in the 1960s, Jelly had been setting up P2 lodges all over the world in places like Argentina, Venezuela, France, Bolivia, Portugal, Nicaragua. Um, And not surprisingly, there's a direct correspondence between where a lot of the escaping Nazis ended up at the end of World War II and where Geli would set up his lodges. And these lodges were just one part of what some researchers now call the spider network, and which I've referred to it before as this worldwide fascist underground that exists. And if we can step away there from the idea of a conspiracy theory for a second, which is a, it's kind of a toxic and useless term anyway now in, in 2020. Um, but I don't personally think there's anything all that surprising about wealthy or powerful people who have the same political ideology uh, linking up with other wealthy and powerful people in pursuit of a common interest, which is making more money and acquiring more power and gradually undermining um, decadent democracy. Um. But the thing is, it's just that these guys happen to link up with each other in a Masonic Lodge, which lends it this weird occult sort of uh, framing. Um, But it's safe to say that that the P2 Lodge, or at least this shadow world of Italian neo-fascist networking, it's survived right up to the present day. I mean, Italy has since gone through a P3 and a P4 scandal. And the modern alt-right leader Matteo Salvini is currently engaged to Francesca Verdini, whose dad, Denis, was embroiled in the P3 affair, and he was also a close ally of Silvio Berlusconi. And in fact, Gelli once said of Berlusconi that Forza Italia was clearly implementing the rebirth project that Gelli had been working towards as grandmaster of P2. Anyway, Mario Sarcinelli and Paolo Boffi, who'd both been assisting uh, Alessandrini, we'll remember, were both fitted up for financial misconduct and tried for official corruption. Uh, they were acquitted just before Banco Ambrosiano collapsed, and it later emerged that P2 and the Vatican had been leaning on elements in the police and the judiciary to arrest them and force them out of their jobs. The guy who was... Um, Brought in as Calvi's replacement after he'd been arrested. Um, I can't remember his name either now. Jesus, that's bad. I'll have to I'll have to try and edit this in at some point. Um, Roberto Razzoni. Uh, anyway, he he was installed as deputy chairman for the time being, um, and the Banda della Maglia, uh, the the Roman Mafia were deployed to kind of put the frighteners on him and force him out. And he ended up quitting after three months of sustained threats and intimidation towards him and his family. So as the scale of the fraud and embezzlement became obvious, BA's overseas holdings began hemorrhaging money. And Calvi turned to a fixer type called Flavio Carbone to help him finance a construction project in Sardinia, that he hoped would plug some of these holes in BA's finances. Now, Carboni is another spooky guy with links to intelligence and organized crime. And one of the ways he raised money for the Sardinian project was to get Calvi to tell everybody that the Vatican was guaranteeing every single loan. And there is actually evidence to suggest that the Vatican did, in fact, send Calvi uh, what they call letters of patronage, loan guarantees, which would make them financially liable if BA went under. And it's here where Opus Dei kind of briefly surfaces from out of the murk. There's a long running controversy in what you might call the um, Calvi-Truther community over the role that Opus Dei actually played through all this. For those of you who, who weren't raised Catholic, And I was, so I have a ghetto pass to talk shit in episodes like this. But uh, for those of you who who were not raised Catholic, um, Opus Dei is this mysterious, highly controversial sect within the church that has about about 80,000 members worldwide and the ear of every pope who gets elected. And they had a fairly warm relationship with Nazi Germany, of course, with a certain Bishop Felsman once saying that Hitler being against the Slavs meant that Hitler was against communism, meant that Hitler was for Christianity. Felsman was later canonized, by the way, and John Paul II made Opus Dei a, what they call it, a personal pre which is a kind of secular administrative body in the church that is quite similar to a diocese. Jose Mateus, who was a Spanish businessman and a financial supporter of Opus Dei, was also the treasurer of the P2 Lodge. And just before Calvi disappeared, um, he apparently told his wife, Calvi did, that Opus Dei was going to cover all the Vatican's and Banco Ambrosiano's debts. So it is possible that they gave the IOR the impression that it was fine to send these letters of patronage to Calvi to reassure his creditors that everything was above board. Whatever the truth of all this, Calvi knew that there was no way out of the hole he was in and that no amount of construction projects or letters of patronage from the Vatican would really be able to prevent BA from collapsing. So he asked, Uh, Flavio Carboni for one more favor which was to smuggle him out of Italy and get him to safety somewhere before the police or the mafia came looking for him Um, his wife and daughter were already on their way to the States at this point which is apparently where Calvi had been planning to meet them and London was only supposed to have been a stopover the one thing that Calvi took with him of note was a briefcase stuffed with blackmail dirt on a host of shady figures in the world of Italian politics and business. And he began to send messages back to Italy that if he was arrested or if anything happened to his family, he'd tell everything he knew to the police in London. And By the time his body was found in June of 82, the briefcase was long gone. The day before his body was found, the board of Banco Ambrosiano voted to dissolve itself. So the bank there formally ceased to exist. After Calvi's death, the family tried time and again to get the authorities to reopen the case. Uh, Not only did they refuse to believe the official narrative because, you know, who would? Um, But there was also a life insurance payout of like $10 million at stake. The Vatican wound up owing about $230 million to various creditors after BA's collapse, and they paid most of it while refusing to accept any moral responsibility for the bank's failure. Sindona faked his own kidnapping in 1979 with the help of some of his associates in Cosa Nostra, which. Most now see it as a pretty weak attempt at blackmailing his his former pals in finance and high society, and it didn't work because in 1980, he flew back to the States and surrendered to the FBI. The Italian authorities extradited him back to Italy in 1984, and he was given a life sentence for commissioning the murder of Giorgio Ambrosoli. In 1986, he died of strychnine poisoning in prison, likely because he was he was on the verge of cracking and becoming an informant. Licio Gelli ended up on the run first in Switzerland and then in South America. And he was likely using the very same underground rat lines that he'd helped set up for escaping Nazis back in the forties. He was already sentenced to heavy jail time in absentia and he surrendered in Switzerland in the mid eighties. His extradition to Italy needed a team of 100 police snipers and a bulletproof motorcade to make sure that he got to prison alive. And in 1992, he was given an additional 18 years for his role in the collapse of Banco Ambrosiano, the same year that 16 members of P2 went up on charges of subversion, conspiracy against the state and conspiracy to commit acts of terrorism. He was nominated, actually, for a Nobel Prize for Literature in 1996, sponsored by Mother Teresa, of all people. And he escaped from house arrest in 98. And after a lifetime of intrigue and conspiracy and murder and corruption, he died a free man in Tuscany in 2015. The... Calvi case has been reopened and closed a couple of times through the years but in 2004 the Italian courts finally delivered a verdict of murder. Uh, That's since become the official narrative and the details of the actual killing can be found in this excerpt from an independent article from February 2004 headlined Unearthed the True Story of Roberto Calvi. It was about 9pm on a June evening in 1982, the Roberto Calvi left his Chelsea flat to enjoy a meal of pasta and beans. After his late supper, the 62-year-old walked the short distance to the north bank of the River Thames and boarded a boat. The banker thought that he was being treated to a twilight pleasure cruise days before he was due to leave London to start a new life with his family in the United States. It was while he was standing on the boat that his killer came up behind him and placed a rope around his neck. His assassin garrotted him, pulling the orange cord with such force that he lifted his victim into the air. As Calvi struggled, his feet dragged along the deck, leaving deep scrape marks on the heels of his shoes. Shortly after midnight on the 18th of June, the lifeless body was taken to Blackfriars Bridge, where the murder weapon had been tied into a lover's knot and placed around his neck. His killers placed two lumps of concrete in the financier's underpants, two in the trousers of his grey suit, along with $15,000 in cash. The rope was then tied to some scaffolding on the bridge, and the body was allowed to slip into the water. At the time, it was high tide, so by the early hours of the morning, the water had retreated, and the body was found hanging from a steel pole. Now, here's where I'd normally be tempted to run through the list of potential suspects in the killing, as in... Uh, who actually ordered it, who personally carried it out, and so on and so on. Uh, For me, the most obvious prime suspect of actually killing the guy is a small-time drug dealer called Sergio Vaccari. He was found stabbed to death in London three months after Calvi was killed. He was carrying a bunch of Masonic documents written in a strange code that a private investigator hired by Calvi's family, a guy called Jeff Katz, uh, was able to translate as alluding vaguely to the Calvi hit. It's likely that the mafia uh, had commissioned the murder, but they subcontracted the hiring of the actual killer to their associates in, in Britain. A UK-based Sicilian mafiosi killed, called um, Francesco Di Carlo, who ended up flipping, has also been accused of actually carrying out the killing. Uh, he maintains that he wasn't involved, but he knows who was, and it was somebody very close to P2 and the Italian secret services five people were eventually tried in Italy in 2005. Um, among them, a Cosa Nostra Kappa called Giuseppe Carla. The investigators continually received death threats and even bullets in the post as the trial rolled along. All five suspects were eventually acquitted. But here's the thing, right? This is what I've been thinking the more I've, the deeper I've got into this. Me just listing a bunch of names, actually misses the forest for the trees when it comes to something like Banco Ambrosiano and Roberto Calvi. Uh, there are fairly regular stories about how like this time investigators have finally cracked the case and they're closing in on mafiosi X, Y or Z as a result. But for me, trying to pass the who is a really good way to melt your brain to no benefit. And um, We could spend another episode going over that and it wouldn't really serve our purposes anywhere. But if you do want to mess up, your brain chemistry. Have a look into Jeff Katz's background. The private investigator. Um, he was an intelligence officer during the Vietnam War. He worked for Kroll Associates as director of their European operations, and he played a key role in investigating Robert Maxwell's pension fraud in the 1980s. Anyway, if you'll if you'll permit me, uh, Springer's final thought type moment. Um, The point I was trying to make is that um, ultimately, Calvi was involved in a rigged game and forces infinitely larger than himself were driving events. And just like the the countless people who wanted and needed him dead, Calvi was only a node in this broader system of occult shadow networks within occult shadow networks. So although he benefited from this rig game himself for decades, there was only ever one ending on the cards once the scandal blew up and the real behind-the-scenes powers were threatened with exposure. He probably knew this better than anyone, which is why he had a bunch of fake passports and documents on hand all the time. And the thing I'm struck by the most, as I've read uh, deeper and deeper into this, as we've moved deeper and deeper into like the gloom of Cold War Europe, is that even the real power players, like the the people who thought that they were the puppeteers, even they didn't really know what was happening a lot of the time. Um, We talked about the, the billions that were lost in Banco Ambrosiano's collapse. And of course, like money and greed is a driving factor. But I also think about the Epstein scandal and how like after a while, the secrecy and the complexity and the murkiness becomes its own kind of intoxication for a certain kind of person, like a, a Lucio jelly. And I mean, after a certain point, you don't really need the money or even the political influence anymore. But the fact that you can move with ease between uh, the normal world and a much stranger, darker world that is is parallel to this one, while carrying the secret knowledge of like a thousand dirty deals and hidden engines, driving the events in birth and knowing um, you are crushing your enemies and, and even driving history itself becomes just as valuable and worth killing for as like all the ideology and drug money and political influence ever could be. And as with the real people who were calling the shots in the Epstein cleanup job or the Detroit affair or the Brabant, crime spree or whatever it is that we've been talking about so far i think that part of the thrill for these guys is also the knowledge that you were nearly caught like that the shadow world that you live in briefly overlapped with this world and that for a moment everything was on the table and everything was up to be exposed and then with like some deft maneuvering and timely payoffs and phone calls and the right threats made to the right people uh, you managed to close off your shadow world again and and seal it up against the light and move everything back into the fog, knowing that you, you are safe again in the dark. Well, <clears throat> that should do it for Italy and Europe for the time being. But uh, hang on to your ticket because we will definitely be traveling back here at some point in the future. For now, we will be relocating to the other side of the Atlantic. We will be riding a pale horse through the America with a care of the psyche to talk about the demons and the spooks that are haunting this dying imperial core. Uh, we're going to be kicking off that sequence with the episode I'll be putting out for Halloween, which I'm adding the finishing touches to right now. And then I should be recording that in the next couple of weeks. But in the meantime, I think I'm going to put out like a couple of less kind of research intensive episodes and kind of do a bit of freewheeling and, and chill out a little bit. Um, again, get in touch on ghoststoriesend at gmail.com and shoot some emails into my truth bunker. Um, it's been a lot of fun so far, actually talking with you guys. Um, oh, actually, there may be one more European story left to tell between now and the Halloween show, but that all really depends if I can get drunk enough to to actually face it. But I can usually always get drunk enough, so uh, keep an eye out for that one. Until then, and as always, thanks for joining us. Urge the show on friends and loved ones. Subscribe if you aren't already subscribed and don't get captured. Cheers, guys.
0: (laughs) Here comes a roly-poly man he's singing songs of love. Roll it poly, roll poly